Welcome to the Best Interest Podcast, where we believe Benjamin Franklin's advice that an investment in knowledge pays the best interest, both in finances and in your life. Every episode teaches you personal finance and investing in simple terms. Now, here's your host, Jesse Kramer. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 73 of the Best Interest Podcast. I'm Jesse Kramer. Today, Joe Saul Sihai is stopping by the pod. Joe is the host and creator of the Stacking Benjamins podcast, a hugely popular personal finance podcast. It's incredibly fun to listen to, and I'll give Joe a better introduction later on in the show. First, I want to do the usual thing. I want to share our review of the week, and then I'm going to give you guys a quick list-style monologue. I think you know, it's a list. Who doesn't like a good list? And I think as finance and investing nerds, you guys will appreciate this list. Okay, today's review of the week. As a reminder, these reviews come from Apple Podcasts. I love it when you guys leave reviews. And hey, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts right now, why don't you leave me a rating and review? Thank you very much. This review of the week comes from Addiction216. Addiction says, a rising tide raises all ships. I love Jesse's podcast. All relatable money stories and interviews. Just found the blog too. Great pod. Addiction, thank you very much for the kind words. If you shoot me an email, jesse at bestinterest.blog, I'll get you hooked up with some best interest gear. And I know a recent, uh, a couple recent uh, reviews that we that we read out here on the podcast have reached out to me and I've I've sent them a super soft best interest t-shirt their way. So thank you guys for the reviews. And it's always fun when you hear me shout you out on the podcast and you get a hold of me via email. Okay, now let's dive into a quick monologue. One of my friends posted on LinkedIn this week and he shared some helpful questions and tips and ideas that everybody, and I really mean everybody, should be asking if they're considering entering a relationship with a financial advisor. Now that I'm living in the professional financial advisor space and I'm, I'm swimming in these waters and I've kind of had a look around at all the other fish swimming in these waters, it behooves you as a consumer to ask a lot of good questions and to understand the kind of relationship that you're entering into. Because there are plenty of amazing actors in the space who provide huge amounts of help and there are plenty of folks on the other side who I, I wouldn't want any of you guys to end up working with someone like that. I want you to work with someone who, who really can help you. So I loved this list that I saw on LinkedIn and it inspired me to update my own list, which is, it was a couple years old. I had a list on the best interest on the blog. So now I want to share with you 16 ideas and questions you need to bring up if you're considering working with a financial advisor. Every March, I go to a local school district and I, I teach a personal finance and investing class to a group of teachers there. And after finishing that class, a couple springs ago, a teacher walked up to me to pick my brain and she used to have a financial advisor, but he left his company and she wanted to find a new trusted advisor again, but she had a problem. And she said, you know, Jesse, I wouldn't know where to start. I don't know what questions I should ask. I'm not sure how to tell the difference between a good advisor and a bad one, between high fees and low fees. How do I know I'm not being scammed? She felt paralyzed by uncertainty. We've all been there. It's very understandable. And it was an important reminder to me that most people don't know where to start, especially with something like this. They're unaware of their blind spots almost by definition. And the best interest, our mission is to help people like that. All right, let's dive into the 16 important thoughts, questions, and reminders that you should be asking and bringing to a prospective financial advisor. 
The first thought is that they should be asking questions to you. The financial advisor should be asking just as many questions of you as you're asking questions of them. They should ask you questions about your goals, about your timeline to your goals, about your income and your debts, about your risk tolerance when it comes to investing. You don't necessarily need to drive the conversation and you certainly don't need to commit to anything. A good advisor will ask you lots of questions and listen to your personal circumstances. Number two, you should ask if the advisor is a fiduciary. A fiduciary has an ethical and legal obligation to work in the best interests of their clients. They have to be honest, clear, forthright, and helpful. It's peculiar that some advisors are not fiduciaries. In other words, they don't have an obligation to work in your best interests. I think that's quite peculiar. Uh, you want a fiduciary by your side, at the very least. Be wary of settling for anything less. And what I just said there, I said you want a fiduciary at the very least. Unfortunately, sometimes even fiduciaries, when you open up the hood and see what they're doing on a daily basis for their clients, it almost does come into question of what they are doing uh, and, and whether it truly is in their client's best interests. So at the very least, start with that fiduciary question. But then I encourage you to dive deeper and we will get deeper in the remaining of the 16 points because there are more questions to ask. Number three is how do you get paid and how much do you get paid? Now, you're not necessarily asking them their salary, but really what you're asking them is how do you collect revenue and how much revenue are you going to collect from me specifically? It's a very important question. Everyone gets paid somehow, right? That's the world we live in and, and it's totally understandable. Now, some common answers you hear from advisors might be, I sell insurance products and annuities and I collect a commission upfront. I sell loaded mutual funds and I collect a commission upfront. I trade stocks on your behalf and I collect a commission on every trade. I invest on your behalf and I collect a percentage fee of the assets under management. But you pay me a retainer, whether you use me or not, or I charge by the hour, straight up. One hour is 300 bucks, something like that. Now, which of those is best? Which of those is worst? We'll discuss that in number four. But an important point, in my opinion, is that the advisor should be clear, straight, and concise about their answer. Obfuscation is a red flag. As an example, uh, a common answer that I've heard, this is a story that my dad tells me, is when he asked his advisor, he said, you know, so Adrian, how exactly do you get paid? And the advisor said, oh, Chris, that's a great question. You don't even have to worry about it. The fees just, they, you, you won't even see them. The returns that you're seeing on your statement, my fees are already included. We have to pause right there because in that case, Adrian, the financial advisor, he didn't really answer the question. That was a, a red flag. That was obfuscation. He just tried to kind of hand wave it away. That's a big problem. Any advisor should be clear, straight, and concise about the answer of how they get paid. Number four, what are your conflicts of interest? Everyone has conflicts of interest. If they say otherwise, I think you should proceed with caution. The key is to understand the incentives behind their conflicts and also the severity of the conflicts. Here are six common examples that match up with the way people get paid that I mentioned in number three. So the first one, I sell products and I collect commissions. These kind of advisors are incentivized to sell products whether you need them or not. Their compensation occurs at the time of sale. So they're incentivized to be very helpful before you purchase one of their products, but not necessarily afterwards. And in my opinion, that's bad for a client or an investor's long-term benefit. The second example, I trade stocks on your behalf and I collect a commission on every trade. These people are incentivized to trade a lot. And you should note that the fees come directly out of your profits, so it's bad for you. The more that they do, the more trades they make, the better it is for them, but the worse it is for you. 
The third example, I invest on your behalf and I collect a percentage fee. These advisors are incentivized to bring in more of your money under their management, which is usually good for you, but could be bad. They're also incentivized to make your money grow over the long run. Again, this is usually good for you, right? More money is good, but it could potentially be bad. They might be seeking more risk than you're comfortable with to seek extra reward. They collect the same fee, whether they do 100 hours of work or two hours of work. So you as the client should make sure that you're getting your money's worth. And we'll talk about that in number 12 as far as what some of the services that you should be asking for are. But this advisor is incentivized to keep you happy for the long run, right? They're collecting a fee year after year after year after year. So they're incentivized to, to keep you around year after year. They're incentivized to keep you happy. So in that way, you win together. The fourth example, if someone says they're a fiduciary, well, there's not much of a financial conflict there. In fact, the advisor has voluntarily made their career more complicated by becoming a fiduciary. It's a hoop to jump through. And the reason to do it then is to stand out from the crowd. So being a fiduciary is a positive for clients and prospective clients. You guys should be seeking out a fiduciary. Another payment model is the one we mentioned before where you pay a retainer, whether you use the advisor or not. Now, in this case, the advisor is incentivized to do as little work as possible for you and to do it as quickly as possible, right? Because they collect the same fee, the same retainer, whether they do 100 hours of work or two hours of work. So again, you want to make sure you're getting your money's worth. Typically, uh, a retainer style advisor is not investing money on your behalf. You'll have to maintain and monitor your own investments. Uh, but this advisor is incentivized to keep you happy for the long run again. So in that way, you guys win together. And the last one is someone who charges by the hour straight up. Now, this advisor is incentivized to take their time with your work. But you have to realize in some times that might mean too much time. If a five-hour job can be stretched to fill an eight-hour day, that's good for the advisor, but it's bad for the client. So as a client, you should try to obtain time estimates up front. Typically, this kind of advisor is not investing on your behalf, so you will have to maintain and monitor your own investments. But this advisor is incentivized to keep you happy for the long run. They want your repeat business over time. So in that way, you win together. So the moral of the story is that everyone has conflicts. Every advisor, their revenue is your loss. Therefore, it's important to understand how they get paid. Uh, in general, I think the AUM fee-only model that we discussed, the retainer model, and the hourly model are the most beneficial for clients because the advisors are incentivized to do good work over the long run on your behalf. You win together. Commission-based models are not ideal since their incentives are not aligned with the typically long timelines of their clients. That was a long one. Okay, let's move on to number five, the fifth question you guys should be asking. Do you advise on investments or do you also provide financial planning, tax planning, trust and estate work, retirement planning, that kind of thing? I think that you guys should be looking for an advisor or better yet, a team of advisors who have the expertise to provide multiple services. Investment advising alone is insufficient, especially if you view yourself as a financial rookie. You need all the help you can get. And we'll come back to this in uh, question number 12. The sixth question, though, is do you pay referral fees to others or do you collect referral fees yourself? Now, there's some red flags here. If you are referred to an advisor or to an accountant or to an attorney, you want those referrals to occur because that professional is just the best fit for you not because there was a $500 referral fee that changed hands. You don't want to be a pawn in someone else's referral game. Number seven, what's your investment philosophy? 
Answers here will vary. Uh, as a potential client, you should understand, though, how risky is this advisor or how conservative? What kind of timelines are involved in their investment strategies? How active is the advisor in making trades? What assets, stocks, bonds, real estate, etc., will your money be invested in? Are their choices customizable to your unique needs? All terrific questions to ask, and, and it is worth understanding any advisor's investment philosophy. Number eight, what credentials do you and your team have? The CFP, which is the Certified Financial Planner, and CFA, which is the Chartered Financial Analyst, are the cream of the crop for financial planning and investment analysis, period. A CPA, which is a certified public accountant, is also very helpful when it comes to tax planning work. You should seek out those credentials, CFP, CFA, and CPA. Most other credentials are glorified marketing rather than any sort of marker of true effort and understanding. Question number nine, how is your advisory business structured? Now, in a perfect world, your advisor and all her coworkers would be rowing in the same direction on your behalf. At some firms, that's exactly the case. At other firms, the advisors are siloed. They don't necessarily work together. You're going to get the best thinking of your person. Your advisor is really the only one thinking about your scenario. Even worse than that, though, some firms have competitive incentives inside the firm where one advisor's loss is another advisor's win. And in that situation, clients are the ones who get squeezed. Now, as a client, you'd prefer everyone at your firm to be working together for your benefit. Question number 10, a simple one. Who manages your money, Mr. Advisor? An advisor should manage their money in the same manner they recommend to their clients, period. Number 11, what kind of long-term returns should I expect? This answer depends on the assets involved, but for a traditional diversified portfolio, which might be, say, 70% stocks, 30% bonds, it's reasonable to assume a 8 or 9% per year return over the long run. But then you have to realize inflation eats about 3% of that spending power. Taxes might eat another percent. And then a healthy conservatism, you know, you should ask yourself, will the future mimic the past? That might eat another percent or two. So in summary, the, the real return, the real increase in spending power that you'll receive, net of fees and taxes, will end up somewhere in the range of 3 to 4% per year. In other words, before inflation, 6 or 7% per year. After inflation, 3 or 4% per year. Your money's still growing, but it's not 10% per year. And I don't think any advisor should promise anything like that. Similarly, if you dump all your money into an S&P 500 index fund, over the long run, you'll expect a nominal return of 10%, but you're still paying inflation, you still have to deal with taxes, and you still might want to add in healthy conservatism, which is why your real return, net of any sort of tax or fee or that kind of thing, is going to end up in that 3 4 5% range. Question number 12, what's your value proposition? In other words, why is your cost worth it? Now, if your advisor only invests your money, that's probably a bad value proposition unless their fee is very low. Why is that? Well, because the average advisor provides average returns. That's just math. And you can seek out average returns on your own. Why pay someone else for average returns? A worthwhile advisor, however, provides significant value through financial planning, retirement planning, goals-based investing. Uh, investment withdrawal strategies are huge. So much money can be saved with proper investment withdrawal strategies. Systematic rebalancing. I see a lot of unbalanced portfolios. It's a little bit scary. 
tax-efficient investing, right? What assets to hold in what accounts, asset allocation, behavioral coaching might be the biggest one. If an advisor, and this has happened to me, happened to me in 2022, if you don't know, it was a pretty tough year, but if an advisor can prevent you from doing something stupid when the market is 15% down and therefore saving you that 15% gain when the market recovers, a 15% change in your portfolio pays for a lot of help from that advisor. In other words, that one thing alone might be worth the cost of, of paying an advisor. And then there's just some, some simple stuff, stress reduction. I mean, one of the best parts is clients get to offload their financial stress onto me and, and the team that I work with here. And I get to turn around and provide them terrific answers that help them sleep at night. That's pretty fun. Financial education. I think a good advisor and, and team of advisors should be educating you on what's going on, why it's going on, why it matters, how it saves you money, that kind of thing. Tax loss harvesting, unique and private investing opportunities. I mean, the list goes on. All this kind of stuff, which some of you might know, but, but some of you might not know how to do it on your own. Some advisors provide a few of those services. Some provide all of those services. The important goal is that your advisor provides value to you in return for the fees you pay. Investment management isn't enough. Question number 13, what's your succession plan? What happens if the advisor gets hit by a bus? Is there a succession plan in place? The, the average advisor is 59 years old in the US. That's a pretty scary stat. So what happens if the advisor that you're thinking about working with retires or moves to another firm? What happens to your relationship with the advisor? Uh, there are plenty of cases where someone I know has started working with an advisor, within five years, the advisor retires and essentially sells their relationship to some new person who the client never really agreed to work with in the first place. You don't necessarily want that to be your succession plan. Question number 14, what communication cadence should I expect? How often will you meet with this advisor? How often will the advisor send an email or a newsletter or a podcast to stay in touch? How often will you get together for a big review? And then can you as a client request more communication if needed, or can you opt in for less communication than is typical? All good questions to understand beforehand. Question number 15, how many clients do you have, Mr. Advisor? Now, different strokes for different folks here. I've heard that a normal, fully loaded individual advisor could or should have somewhere on the range of 100 to 200 client relationships. Now, does that mean you should be spooked by an advisor who has 250 or 300, 400? I'm not really sure. I do, however, know some advisors with 1,000 plus client relationships. And for that, I mean, just do the math. There's no way those advisors are monitoring, communicating with all of their clients on a regular basis. There's only 2,000 hours in the typical working year. If you want to be really ambitious, 2,500. So if you think about that, 2,500 working hours, sure, if you have 200 client relationships, you're devoting, you know, on average 12 hours per client minus all the logistical stuff. That seems reasonable, but you should do math like that before, before signing up. You should understand how many clients the advisor has and therefore how much attention that you will be getting. And finally, question number 16, can I speak with a few clients to hear their opinions of you? It's good to hear from real clients about their experience with the advisor. Of course, you have to realize that the advisor is only going to connect you with happy clients who will give glowing reviews. Uh, but still, you should ask those clients some of the same questions that we've already talked about here to see if their answers match and mirror what the advisor has told you. 
If you get satisfactory answers to those 16 questions, that's a great start. Your advisor passes the smell test. And after that point, you should ask questions like, do I trust this person? Are their costs competitive? Do I enjoy being around them? You know, do I want to have a conversation with this person two or three or four times a year for a few decades to come? All good questions. And then make a choice that feels right to you. Here's a quick ad, and then we'll get back to the show. Every week, I send a quick free email to thousands of readers that shares three simple things. One, my new articles and podcasts. Two, the best financial content of the week from all over the internet. And three, a financial chart that explains some important concept in the news that week. It's a great primer to boost your financial know-how. But Jesse, I don't want another email. Well, this might not be for you. But I do hear you, which is why I make it very short, sweet, and full of only the essentials. While 18% of people who sign up eventually unsubscribe, and 13% of people who are signed up haven't opened it in the past three months, a whopping 66% of subscribers read my email at least once a month. They're enjoying it, and maybe you will too. You can subscribe for free on the homepage at bestinterest.blog. Again, that's a free, no-strings-attached subscription at bestinterest.blog. And speaking of financial advisors, Joe Salcihai, who's a former financial advisor, is stopping by the Best Interest podcast. Joe is one of the hosts of Stacking Benjamins, a podcast that explores smart approaches to financial planning. It's one of the most listened-to podcasts in the personal finance space. Kiplinger has called the show the Best Personal Finance Podcast, and Joe has appeared in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and on the Morningstar Longview podcast. As with many of my favorite financial communicators, Joe has a superpower of translating money talk into simple English. And now, folks, when I logged into Riverside to record this interview with Joe, he was playing the following song into his microphone. So to put you in the right mood and to give you the full Joe Salcihai experience, let's cue up that JSS playlist. Joe, thank you for joining us on the Best Interest Podcast. As one of the preeminent personal finance communicators out there, I mean, how do you do it? Now, seriously, I, I do. There's a serious question here because many of our listeners, they are the people in their own families, in their own friend groups, their tribes, who are depended on as the financial experts. They they know the basics. They even know some of the complex stuff. They're leaned upon by their loved ones to help out, to communicate with others, to share their knowledge. And here we have you, one of the best finance communicators I know. So what, what do you think are the, the underlying skills that enable you to teach so many people these important financial topics? I mean, what have you found that works well? What in your experience maybe has been a dead end? Dude, thanks so much for having me. I think the approach, Jesse, is do whatever it takes to get on the Best Interest podcast with, with Jesse. I think you have to have that resilience so that you can come here the top of Mount Everest and declare that you're retired. Because what's better? Is there anything better than being here? Top five experience, I would Easily. say, for most people who have been on the podcast. Easily. It, it's on their yes. Mount Rushmore. Absolutely. Yeah, this, th this is it. So I'm here to announce my retirement. Thanks for the kind words. But you know what I've learned over time is that it all depends on the medium. And what I mean by that is that podcasting specifically, as you know, because we were talking about this a little bit before we hit record, it's about storytelling. Mm. I, I think as, as just humans, you know, from the time that humanity began, we learn from stories of 
mistakes that people made and heartbreaks that happened and how we got so close to the goal and we didn't make it. And those stories resonate with us and we feel empathy for people and we learn from those things. I used to, when I first started off, I had a bunch of statistics. Like I talk statistics a lot. I've largely thrown that away because mm. statistics, you know, if we talk about, you know, 38.75% of statistics are made up on the spot. We like people don't even get the joke because that, <laughs> that is a visual joke. Like if you read that, it's very funny. If I say it, the second I start spewing numbers, people go, I don't know what you're talking about. So I found that the longer I do this medium, the more I embrace storytelling and I look for those stories. Like we all have these things that get in our way when it comes to not just our money, but our lives. And, and, and I guess that's the second thing as I think about this is that it also becomes less about money and more about getting more what you want out of life and realizing that like money's not the means to the end. Money is the pathway to better living. And I get so damn frustrated. This is what frustrates me about money geeks. The money geek that spends all day optimizing all their crap all the time. And they're wasting hours, wasting their life. Because often what we find by optimi over-optimizing is that later on, what I need to really be solving for is flexibility. And then I get to this spot where I'm like, oh, my, my plans completely changed. Life threw me a curveball, right? Life always gives you an opportunity when your money's locked up. Like every, every time you can't get at your cash, that's when the opportunity happens. <laughs> and when you uh, have solved for optimization, now all of a sudden you got to unwind all this crap. And then you're like, oh man, I should have done differently. So, so that frustrates me. I feel like we overestimate a lot in our community meaning our greater, your community, the Stacky Benjamins community, just the personal finance community, we overemphasize money and we less emphasize having more time, spending that time doing things that feed us, having these wonderful experiences and life moments. I feel like that's where the magic is the longer I do this. You reminded me of something that Fritz Gilbert, Retirement Manifesto, do you know Yeah, Fritz? sure. He was on, boy, I want to say episode 63. Maybe I, as a, a bad podcaster for not knowing my episodes off the top of my head, but <laughs> Fritz was saying how so many pre-retirees, how they focus on the numbers. It's the numbers, it's the optimization, it's the tax brackets, and then they get a year or two or three into retirement and they realize that the numbers maybe belonged in like the top five things they should have been thinking about pre-retirement. But so many of the other things are the other parts of life. You know, what yeah. brings them joy, what they'd be doing with their time, how they would find purpose once they were no longer working. And, and, and you realize that it, it is stories from other people. When I heard Fritz tell that and he told some of his specific stories of, of readers, I was like, oh, it kind of clicked with me that it is such an important idea that it's not about numbers and spreadsheets, at least not all the time. Especially, I think one of the lessons I've learned here when it comes to communication and getting back to that idea is some of my episodes, I try to sneak in numerical topics into that episode. And I tell my listeners, and they, they know what I'm talking about, I'll say, well, I'll throw a link to this graph in the show notes. And then I try to describe the graph. And then upon <laughs> re-listening, I'm like, uh, that <laughs> Listen, probably wasn't the right move, Jesse. Like, Good for you for at least pointing the, the <laughs> listeners to where they can look at the graph or look at this table. And here I am going like, well, in cell D3, you can see what I'm talking about. <laughs> like, wow. I, I, I hope for their sake, the listeners, so like next podcast, 
what Netflix is, is going to pick this up <laughs> right. pretty what soon. What the hell is this guy doing? But Joe, I know you spent, uh, maybe you can correct my exact number, 15 or so years working in the profession. You were a professional yeah. financial advisor, financial planner before eventually you know, starting up Stacking Benjamins, fully committing to Stacking Benjamins in the content world. But you've seen both sides of things, professional, amateur, DIY. And I'm curious where you draw the line in your own head, meaning what kinds of problems can or should DIYers feel totally confident handling on their own? Which problems might they strongly consider outside help? And maybe what are some scenarios where, where a listener or a DIYer has come to you and you've said, oh, this DIYer needs a pro or mm -hmm. vice versa? This person who's working with a pro, they should just be doing this DIY. I think the problem comes because I'm going to back away from that question specifically and kind of mm -hmm. make it a little more philosophical. Sure, sure. Which is, which is why do pros even exist in the first place? And also there's a myth out there, which is this myth of the independent atoms that make up one human being. And I'm not part of this collective group, which is BS, right? People's success is built on somebody else's success. You can't look at a SpaceX rocket and watch that badass stuff that happens when the rocket comes back down and it lands on that platform, you know, and you go, that's genius. And just think, oh, Elon Musk did that by himself. Elon Musk didn't right, do that by himself. Right. I mean, don't get me wrong. A <laughs> lot of cool stuff Elon Musk did. Smart guy. Sure. Yeah. But it was leading a bunch of smart people and Elon surrounds himself with smart people. So this idea that I see in online forums where I don't need a pro because I've got you guys who don't know me, know nothing about my situation, know Zippo about the whole holistic thing that makes up Joe, that you're going to be able to answer my question better than a smart person who I network with and is part of a mastermind group of smart people I surround myself with. It's baloney. I get on Facebook. I see these questions on Facebook, Jesse. People ask, what should I do with my 401k? No, no infrared. How far away are you? What type of risk do you need to take? Not even what's my risk tolerance. What risk do I need to take? How much money do I need to save? But Earl in Peoria, Illinois, who I've never met in my entire life, has a definite opinion of what I should do, gets angry if I don't do it. Earl can't zip up his pants. He spends all day on Facebook. And I'm asking Earl about my, my situation. So my definition of pros is we should always surround ourselves with smart people, no matter who we are, period, full stop. But that said, I also need to be the CEO of my company. So my dad spent his entire career working for General Motors. And Mary Barra has done a heck of a job at General Motors, not by making General Motors this amazing Tesla-ish, we talked about Elon Musk, this Tesla-ish mm. thing, but just by keeping them relevant, right? Yeah. The fact that GM is even relevant after all the crap that happened in Detroit is just a testament to her leadership. Are there things that American manufacturers could do? Absolutely. You know, and this is the way people look at, at advisors. Mary doesn't come in every six months to work once every six months and sits down with her VPs, which are her advisors, right? And go, so how's this car thing coming? Have you guys got this car <laughs> thing down? Like Mary needs to know how a car runs. She's the CEO of her company and you need to be the CEO of your financial life. So on one hand, Jesse, to answer your question, I feel like we should be DIYers with everything. How do I get this done? What's the best approach? 
And then if I run up against a wall, then I need smart people around me who I've proactively surrounded myself with to go, hey, I got this issue. What do you think? It's funny. I get this great coaching from a group called Strategic Coach. They're mm, wonderful. Yeah. They're brilliant. They, they cost 15 bags of money, but they're worth every penny and more. The one thing Strategic Coach taught me was ask who, not how. If mm. I ask how to do something like, how do I do a mega backdoor Roth IRA? That's a bad question. You're going to end up in YouTube freaking hell watching 50 million videos about how this stuff works. Or I can ask who's done that before, who knows how it works, who got tricked up by it. So I look at everything a little differently. So just changing the lens of your question, I think everything I do financially should be DIY, every single thing. But then I know when I run up against those walls, okay, I got these smart people around me who have done it before. Not somebody with a great sales pitch or somebody who works for the firm down the street that I never heard of or that my brother-in-law knows. No, 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 no. I want to plug them in and exec, because that's what a DIYer does, right? I'm like, hey, I don't know how to do this thing. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plug in this person. It was this big aha for me when I realized that my advisor didn't need to be a person who walks lockstep with me every moment of every day. I have those advisors. Mm-hmm. But often your advisor is somebody I just plug in for this one thing. I want to pay you X amount of money to teach me how to do this thing. And then you know what? Next time I don't need you because you taught me how to do this. I think that's, I think every person needs advisors. You're making me think of a few things. But first, I actually just got passed a sticky note from my attorney here in the office. We actually have two listeners named Earl from Peoria. And we just want to let you guys know, <laughs> you can zip up your own pants. That was satire, which is protected speech. <laughs> Uh, so you try to, you try to sue us. It's not going to work. Just FYI, Earl. I've used Earl as my kicking boy for a long time, Jesse. And this is funny. I actually, a few years ago, I had a wonderful, wonderful email from a woman in Peoria saying, you know, we have a couple, we have universities here. We're pretty smart people. (laughs) And I'd wish you'd quit picking on Peoria. Peoria is probably a very nice place. Sure it is. Sure it is. And another another thing you made me think of there, Joe, is when it comes to like the DIYers, the Facebook groups, the Reddit groups, I've seen them, you've seen them. The analogy or the, the phrase that always comes to mind is we have the blind leading the blind, first off. And then the, the, the second part of that is, well, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Meaning <laughs> in some cases, you just, you see this and you see the question and, and immediately, right, you and I are like, okay, we, we need to know more before we can even start answering this question. And yet answers, 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 answers. They're all pouring in and the answers are all different. And it, it really is a bit of the blind leading the blind. And then sometimes you'll see some answer that has, has a grain of truth in it. And it's the one getting all the upvotes or all the likes. And even then you say like, that's the one-eyed man right there who's got a decent answer and, and kind of the crowd is making him the king because he's the decent answer. But even then, oftentimes those kind of crowdsourced platforms and answers have have issues with them. But nevertheless, I really like what you said. Like ultimately, we all have to take some sort of personal responsibility to run our own ship, to be our own boss. Right now, confession, I'm actually working with an outside coach on some health and fitness education. One of my one of my Love big it. goals this year is getting myself in shape. A big reveal. I don't think I've revealed it on the podcast yet. We're expecting our first child in June. Hey. Really exciting news. That's awesome. And 
I'm, Dude, I'm sitting your, here. Your life is ruined, <laughs> but in the best way possible. That's fabulous. It's very exciting. But one of the first things that came to my mind was I want to get myself in good shape before this child arrives. And because I know it's going to be even harder once the child is here. And I don't want to find myself as, you know, a 38 year old man. I'm, I'm 33 right now. But I don't want to find myself with a five year old child and, and my up. knees, my knees are too sore to, right, to keep up. So anyway, I'm getting myself in shape. And one thing this fitness health coach has really helped me with is no one's going to do it except for you, right? Like you are in charge of your own health. It's not certainly not the, the food industry. It's not even your doctors. It's, it's got to come down to you. You can do it and you're in charge. Same thing with money. I mean, you can do it. You're in charge. I like that. The idea of empowering people to take control of their own finances. The thing that's funny to me about advisors is a tangent to this. You ask people why they don't have advisors. And it's because they go, well, I'm not paying anybody that money. I'm not paying. Mm -hmm. I'm on uh, Paula Pants Afford Anything show every other, every other episode answering listener questions. Mm -hmm. And she and I took a question, literally, Jesse, in, about an hour ago recording for that show. And we were talking about a 1.3% fee somebody's paying their advisor. Now, 1.3 is on the high end. And that's, that's not a great fee. It's not a great look when you call into any show and go, I'm paying 1.3. That's, that's high. But you know what's funny is that people often focus on the fee. And before I get to the fee, and don't get me wrong, we want to never overpay. So I want people to hear this correctly. We don't want to overpay, but fees are not the main dragon. And I feel like I don't know if journalists are lazy or bloggers are lazy or it's the easy thing to point to because it's a guaranteed win. The second that I cut my fee, I save money. But it doesn't mean that I actually capture that money or that I do anything with it. I have found some of the best coaching relationships that I've had have been the most expensive and those impacted my life the most. So I've this friend of mine, Chris Mamula, he wrote the Choose FI book. Chris is a great guy. Chris and I have openly had this fight, so I'm not talking behind Chris's back. Chris wrote, one of the only problems I had with the Choose FI book was, Chris said, first thing you need to ask an advisor is what they charge. And, and I told Chris, I think that's ludicrous because I could charge nothing and not give you anything, or I could charge a bunch and not give you anything. I hate that ROI. But if I charge you a bunch of money and I give you this phenomenal stuff that makes your life a hell of a lot better, like, wow, that's th that could be exactly what I'm looking for. We get so focused on the fee train that we forget we want to meet our goals. And so my thing always is don't ask what the fee is. Ask what I get first. Once I know what I get, then ask, do I need that? Right. Sometimes people are going to give me a bunch of stuff. I'm like, that's really cool stuff. I don't need any of that. No, thank you. Don't need that. Which is why, by the way, Jesse, back to my answer originally, I like the DIY approach to start off with because then I know what I need. Right. Mm -hmm. Maybe not mm -hmm. everything. Like I'm not a doctor who knows my prescription, but I certainly know when I need to see a doctor. If I know where to plug in the right people and, and I'm on top of my heartbeat enough of what's going on with my stuff. Then I can go, what do you offer? Oh, that's exactly what I need. What do you charge for that? Then I can look at that ROI. And for that person, maybe a 1.3% fee might be fantastic. For somebody else, it might be ludicrous. Generally speaking, I think it's ludicrous. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> However, 
I think we fight the feed dragon way too much and not the get my goal enough. Here's a quick ad, and then we'll get back to the show. One of the more common questions I hear is, Jesse, what do you like and use? Books, blogs, podcasts, even banks and brokerage firms. What are your recommendations? So to answer that question, I put together a web page. You can check it out at bestinterest.blog slash recommendations. Again, that's bestinterest.blog slash recommendations to check out how I'm improving my financial life. As you're talking, Joe, I think about two things. One of them is selfish, so I'll do that one second. The unselfish thing is this article from Jason Zweig, Wall Street Journal. He wrote an article like five or six years ago that I see gets, it gets dredged up all the time. And it's the 19 questions you should ask a financial advisor. I love that article. One of those questions does involve fees because it's sure it's part. Of course, it's part of the conversation. You know, when you go to the restaurant, it's got the best steaks in town. Phenomenal. You want to go there, the best steaks in town. If the steak is $400, you'd want to know that up front. You know what I mean? You want to know the ROI. But it's not the only question. And there are many other questions that I think someone should know before they enter any sort of advisor relationship. The selfish resource is a version of that article that I wrote myself on the best interest because I think Jason hit the nail on the head. I think there's some tweaks to some of his questions. So I've got some other questions that I think people should ask advisors before they go or before they agree to work with them. You, you should know what you're getting into. I think for some people, the ROI of working with advisors, because we know there are different business models too, the ROI on one business model is fantastic for one investor, one client. It might not be good for another investor or client. Vice versa, other business models have a great ROI for other types of people. And some people don't need an advisor at all. So it's a spectrum. It's a spectrum. I like though how in your story, Jason's Zweig's article is pretty good, but yours was probably better. <laughs> Listen, you can't get anywhere in life, Joe, without a, a pinch of self-confidence. Like you might have heard of this rag called the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, this this trash. But, but let me tell you something that's even better. A blog with 7,000 subscribers that, called that, The Best Interest. Yes, if you want plussing, well, it's more exclusive. It's more exclusive, oh, right? Way way more exclusive, right? Yeah, that's The Wall it. Street Journal, you know, their their firewall is $2 per issue. Yeah. My firewall is you need to be able to use a keyboard and type your email address in. See? So, See? So it's actually interesting. So you answer a lot of questions, Joe, every other week uh, with Paula Pant, Afford Anything podcast. Paula is huge. You answer a lot of questions on your own podcast, Stacking Benjamins. What are some of the most common questions, requests that you, get, that you answer? And, and maybe it's something that you've just been answering time and time and time again. Or maybe it's something kind of more recently in the news. I know some questions that I've been fielding just this morning, for example, have to do with this Bitcoin ETF. We don't have to talk about Bitcoin right now, but yeah. it is interesting how sometimes something will happen in the news and like, boom, we start getting all these similar questions. So yes. what do you find yourself answering? Yeah, mine, uh, mine lately, the thing in the zeitgeist lately, I think has been much more around what does the change in interest rates mean? Mm -hmm. What does it matter? And maybe it's because we have a baby podcast called Stacking Deeds, which is about real estate. And Paula, of course, you know, has her real estate presence. So maybe that's why we're a little interest rate sensitive there. You, you know, what's even bigger than that, though. And it doesn't even encompass questions I get because we get questions here. But also we get about 70 pitches a week from people that want to be on the show. You begin to get, speaking of the heartbeat, you begin to get the heartbeat of kind of what the publishing community is doing. 
And I, I'll tell you over, you know, 12 years, I've seen the different things just dredge themselves up every year. And you know what the big one is lately? Burnout. It's burnout. We have, we have done so many good shows lately on burnout with experts talking about burnout. And it's funny because I asked a guy, I got him John Acuff. I asked him this question a couple of weeks ago. John was uh, started off his career as a Dave Ramsey guy. Now John's on his own and has written some amazing books. But a Dave Ramsey like employee or just a Dave yes. Ramsey disciple? Employee. He was a James okay. Ra- He was a Dave Ramsey. He was one of Dave Ramsey's first people that Dave hired to go speak that wasn't Dave Ramsey. Got it. Okay. Uh, he was there before I think Rachel Cruz's own daughter was doing stuff for him. But uh, John has long since gone on his own. But John talks a lot about purpose and about finding purpose because it freaks him out, freaks all of us out when we talk about like our why. And, and I asked him this question about burnout and he said he doesn't think that burnout. And, and I tend to agree with this, Jesse, that the, the burnout that we're feeling isn't because of the fact that we're working too many hours or we don't get enough playtime or we it's because of the fact that the work we're doing doesn't feel like it's going anywhere or fulfilling anything. I'm spending too many hours doing stuff that doesn't fill me with anything. And certainly to some degree, there's jobs. I had this great discussion with a plumber. I needed a plumber last week and he came to mm-hmm. my house. We had this wonderful discussion. I don't think that cleaning out somebody's sewer system line, taking tree roots out is fulfilling. But I got to tell you, this guy, the job he does and the pride he has with his work, and you can tell that every day he comes to this job excited and ready and wanting the client to get the most they can. So while it's not about the poop making its way (laughs) through the system, he's excited and ready to go. It's, you know, making tons of money doing it, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So he's got this wonderfully fulfilling life. But he, I think it's lately a lot of people, and maybe this is the pushback after the pandemic, you know, we saw the great resignation after the pandemic and people going, I'm going to quiet quit my job because I'm going to tell my boss where to go. And now we're seeing the labor market tighten and I can't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Like there was this short window where I could tell the boss to shove it. And now for most of us, we can't. And so now we feel like we're trapped and we're burnt out. We're like, what do I do? My boss ex- expects more than ever. So that's been the big problem. And I don't know, I don't know where we go with it except for. And this goes back to the beginning of our conversation, solving for flexibility and mm-hmm. realizing that money's not the only asset I'm chasing. I'm chasing this asset at time on my terms. And how do I get my time on my terms? That's the great conundrum, I think, of 2024. Yeah, I think it's, it's also just a great conundrum that maybe people aren't facing right now in their lives. But most people I know, especially people who have you know lived a few more years, they face it at some point. hopefully it's not ever present. I think if that longing for purpose is ever present in your life, that's unfortunate. And and I don't wish that upon anybody, but we all hit it at some point. I certainly hit it. I I know you enjoy the best interests a little bit, Joe, but you might not know that, you know, I I quit an engineering career. Right. Right. Just because it wasn't, it was okay. That's what I tell everybody. It was like seven out of 10. It was actually an aerospace. We were talking about Elon before. I think Elon's rocket stuff is pretty cool, but it, it was just an okay thing. And I found a lot more fulfillment doing the kind of stuff I'm doing with the best interest. And I pursued it. And, and thankfully, it worked out in my favor. And when I think about what I'm doing now, and when I think about that plumber, there's a, a special kind of fulfillment that comes when, let's use this plumber as an example. If he's the best plumber in town, if he's the kind of people where 
you're telling a story at the weekend barbecue and you're saying, oh my God, we had this issue this week. It was bad. But I called up Earl, the plumber, and he came over and he was phenomenal. And now the other people at the barbecue, they're saying, oh, Earl, okay, I've seen this truck before. I'll, I'll keep that in mind. You know, when you have that kind of reputation and you're the expert and you're the go-to guy, that lights my fire personally. It might be plumbing. In my case, it's personal finance and investing. I, I play some racket sports too. So when people say like, oh, Jesse's got a great backhand, I, I take pride in that. And so- I thank you. Yeah, yeah. Other people say like, yeah, Jesse hits his backhand way too much. What is he doing? He's like- he Is that a like backhanded compliment? I, I think it is. It's, it's the best <laughs> backhanded compliment one can get. But so I feel bad for people, right, who sometimes in their day-to-day career don't see any sort of avenue to- have that sort of pride or fulfillment in what they're doing. And, and in those cases, I think it's a great idea to, to try it as you might to find it somewhere. Maybe it, it does mean you have to switch jobs or switch careers or, or find some sort of side hobby that lights your fire in some way. But it's very interesting that that is the common theme that you're getting right now. Well, I'll tell you John's solution, which, which I wholeheartedly endorse. Can't believe I'd never thought about it, which is He's like, you look into the abyss that's the future, right? Because I'm sure a lot of your listeners right now are going, oh my God, find my fulfillment. Like, how do I do that? What's mm-hmm. that? Do? What happens mm-hmm. there? John says, don't stare into the abyss because that'll just freak you out. Look backward and go, what in the past has lit me up? When I'm around this stuff, when I'm doing these things, like I remember when I was in, in high school, we didn't talk about money much, but what I loved was on the Today Show or on Good Morning America, my mom would have this stuff on and they would have these money experts that are talking about like, if you evened out your utility bills, you might not save money over the long term, but short term, it helps you budget. And I'm like, that is so cool. Like grocery store tips, do the outside, right? And, and, right, right. and what, avoid the middle so, aisles. Yeah. Yeah. All these consumer tips I thought were pretty funny. And now today that's what I do. That stuff lit me up, but it's this process. I think it's far better to begin going backwards and going, I really like this. I really like this. I really like this. And then start putting them into columns. There's so many things in this column. There's so many in this column, like relationships versus things that light me up versus experiences. Like what, what do you like the best? I'm an introvert pretending I'm an extrovert, but I will say when I did this thing, when I was talking to John, I realized that most of the fun stuff in my life is relationship. And I thought I was an experienced guy and I love experiences, but you know, going and doing an experience is fine, but by myself is not as fun as the, for me is the shared experience when I do something with somebody else and we experience it together. Like for me, that lights me up. I was just telling my, my boss yesterday that I think I've realized one of my favorite ways to start my day is eating breakfast with somebody. Like, you know, like a little business type breakfast or something like that. And it's 8 a.m., have a little food, meeting up with somebody, having a good conversation, then going into the office. It's just this, this, I get this great momentum at the beginning of my day. And I think it's that relationship building. Yeah. First thing I'm doing is, is building a relationship and, and meeting someone, sometimes meeting someone new, asking them questions about their life. And it, it just kind of gets me going. It's funny that you mentioned that whole introvert introvert, what, ma- uh, masquerading as an extrovert. Yeah. I, I think about, sometimes I think of myself in the same way, but then I, I can't remember who the expert was who was speaking, but I heard someone talking about that you should think of introversion and extroversion as like a one to seven spectrum. 
uh, one being like the most introverted person, seven being the most extroverted person, four being basically somewhere. It, there, there are people who are a really good blend. And, and this expert was saying that most people you know, most people out there are a three, four, or five. Yeah. That, that even the extroverted people you know, there are times when they need some peace and quiet. And even some of the more introverted people you know, they do want socialization and relationships. So just a weird little side bunny trail there for listeners. You're probably well, a three, four, or five. No, but like the, you know, I, I think the point like anything is, you know, we, we like to put things in these boxes and the boxes are way more messy than we want to pretend they are. Yeah. Joe, I, I wanted to ask too, you were kind enough to, to send me a copy of Stacked. Stacked is the super serious guide to modern money management, a book that you and Emily Guy Birkin published right about two years ago. I think it was end of 2021, right? Right about two years ago. And, and I'd love to know, maybe for you to share with the audience, the audience, they've probably read a few personal finance books before. Stacked, it is the super serious guide. And if anybody can tell from Joe's conversation today, it's pretty funny, right? It's not that serious. But what are some of the parts of the book where you or Emily took some sort of unique or contrarian personal finance stance? What's funny is I don't think any of it is contrarian. And mm -hmm. I don't I don't think that any of it is, oh, wow, that's their thing. What I do think our thing is, is actually our thing is how we explain these concepts and how we differentiate those concepts from the way people see them, you know, when they hear the term. And let me give you an example. One of my first goals was Ramit Sadi in I Will Teach You to Be Rich talks about how he doesn't start with goal setting because every other book starts with goal setting and goal setting doesn't work. And so I'm not going to start with this crap and you're just going to turn you off. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to help you lower your cell phone bill. I think is exactly where he starts. So he gives mm. you a, a practical thing you can do right away. Love that. Love the fact that it's usable. But the thing that annoys me about that, and Ramit and I talked about this, was that I think goal setting doesn't work because we do it wrong. And so I wanted to fix that problem in Stack by doing goal setting the right way. And the big problem that we have with goal setting is that our goals exist in a vacuum. Like a Hoover? Sorry. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I got this goal. Well, let me, let me actually answer that. No, but let's take a goal. Let's say that I want to, let's say that I want to save for my kid's college and I've got these good intentions and week number two, the muffler's dragging behind the car. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to save next month. I'll start that up. And so then five years go by and now Jesse's kid is five years old. And because he's worked out a lot, he can keep up with the kid, but financially he hasn't kept up because five years ago, the muffler was dragging behind the car and he never made that move. Real life hits us in the face, right? I love that. That's a Mike Tyson quote. Mike Tyson. Yeah, Mike Tyson. Yeah. Yeah. Love that quote. So how do we have goals that really we can stay with when real life happens? And I believe if we are spatial, as, as people, we think in terms of, you were talking about a graph earlier, we think in terms of that graph. And so if I take my goals and I timeline them out and I say, I've got this goal, this goal, this goal, I can immediately, because most of us work in spatial relationships, go, oh, man, that one's close. But if I wait until that goal happens to save for this other one behind it, I'm going to be screwed on that second goal. So now my brain starts working about these goals against each other. And then the second question I ask is, what do all these damn things cost? 
Like if I run these goals all back to today, what does my budget have to look like today to make mm-hmm. these all happen? And how do I then put money in all these different buckets to make sure that I get them all? And lo and behold, I run them all back to today. And it's a very simple equation. It's I need to save so many dollars times so much return equals the goal. I do that for each of my goals. I don't have enough money for them all, which by the way, when I was a financial planner was often the case. Yeah. Then we have this badass conversation, which is we put these goals in an MMA cage match and we go, what's going to give? And okay, I want to retire at 62, but I want to put my kids through college. I want to pay for all of it. Well, you know what? Maybe the efficacy of my kids getting a free ride to college isn't for my value set what I want. I want them to learn about it as they grow up. And I'm going to create a curriculum to help them over time learn to be somewhat self-sufficient and, and learn how to pay for part of it. And I'll help them learn how to pay for part of it, but then I'm going to pay for the rest. They'll do some student loans. So then I back that down. Or I go, no, 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 no. College is super important. Nobody in my family went to college. I want to make sure I pay for all this. this is super important to me. 60 years old doesn't matter. I'm going to push that back to 62, 63. See what I'm doing? I go from this BS money conversation into a wonderful values conversation. What do I truly value in my life? And when I do that, when I put my goals on a timeline and I work them back, that was up front, the big aha in stack. That was the big, this is how goal set. And by the way, did that with a bunch of people and I was a financial planner, worked so beautifully. It, it just worked. The goals were sticky people stayed with it. They found other ways around these little problems that came up. They're like, nope, if I don't keep on this train, man, we're not going to get this thing that I love. The second thing was, was, you know, the pushback about advisors that I just gave you earlier. That's, that also made its way to stacked in the late chapters. I actually talk about not just Earl from Peoria, but about how to treat advisors. And I think that's a little incendiary. Like everybody, everybody says financial advisor and they don't think board of directors. They think this suit and plastic suit and tie that I may or may not want to hire. And uh, what do they charge? And they're going to screw me blind and what? Well, if you start with this other, I'm going to do it all myself. And I am Mary Barra at General Motors and work from there. That's a differentiator. We talk about insurances way better in this book than I've read almost anywhere else. Insurance People do so many shortcuts around insurance. They don't understand how it works. They don't insure, they don't understand the mechanisms. So we use some pretty good storytelling to talk about this village where like one person's house burnt down. They didn't have the money to solve the problem. And so they put a bucket in the middle of town and everybody put money in the bucket every month so that if that happened again, well, then they found out people were stealing from the bucket, right? <laughs> that the bucket would, so then they put one person in charge of the bucket. This AK now, by the way, is the insurance industry, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That person then started stealing money from the bucket. So then they had regulators, right, that made sure. So when people talk about insurances, I feel like after you read Stacked, you go, oh, when you read online, somebody goes, oh, that insurance company's ripping you off. Maybe by putting a round peg in a square hole, but insurance is regulated by individual states. And you can you can fool a regulator, maybe for a year, but for two but do you think that like Northwest Mutual has been pulling the shade over uh, people's eyes for the last 20, you know, 30, 40, 50 years or, or New York life or whoever? They can't. So when you hear that insurance is a ripoff, you go, well, that either means you're using it wrong or the insurance agent helped you put a round peg in a square hole 
but there's something amiss here. And so I think when you understand the underpinnings of insurance and how it's sold and how it works, you get a much better idea of it. You know, the humor in the book, money's way too important to make it all super serious and button up. I feel like our blood pressure goes up. We take it so seriously. We put ourselves to sleep. It's got to be fun. It's got to be interesting because the big statistic that kicks off this book is that there's a statistic by a group called Nonfiction Research that says that about half of us, about one in two of us admit that we've cried about our money. You know, there's so many implications there. And most of us think, okay, we hear that statistic. Well, that's mostly people living paycheck to paycheck, which is another problem. Of people making $250,000 or more, Jesse, nearly half of those people cry about their money. So it's way worse than paycheck to paycheck. It's that, and it goes back to the burnout thing we were just talking about. Our goals are going in one direction. Our money's going a whole different way. So the only way we could figure out how to get this done was to inject some humor so that you actually get through the spoonful of sugar to make the medicine go down, (laughs) to quote Mary Poppins. I was at a bookstore in Portland, Oregon called Powell's, this huge bookstore. And I saw this thing called the Cub Scout, excuse me, it was the Hardy Boys Detective Manual. I think people know the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew. They had this detective manual that when my brother, Tony and I, my little brother and I opened this book up and we had it when I was in fourth grade, it said that it was written with the help of a real live FBI agent, like a legit dude who knew his stuff. I remember telling my brother, I'm like, if we do everything in this book, we will know how to be a detective. So like my dad would leave for work on a muddy day and we'd go out and look at the tire tracks because that's what you did. You looked at the tire tracks, the perpetrator. I don't know what my dad did, but <laughs> my mom would touch a door handle. We'd go over there with the tape, you know, and we'd get her Lift finger. The print. Yeah, it was, it was beautiful. And so I wanted that campy atmosphere because it kind of goes along with what we do at Stacking Benjamins. But so that's a differentiator too for, cool. for, for the book. Yeah, very cool. I, I had a few thoughts, and but I don't want to overwhelm listeners with, with too much. But on the topic of priorities, and you were talking about helping what helping readers, helping listeners of your podcast put some of their competing financial goals into that MMA cage and determining for themselves like which one matters the most. And it reminded me of a book, Essentialism, by a guy named Ian McCowan. I might be getting his last name wrong, but I remember one of his quotes from that book is, you know, he went to the root of the word priority, the etymology, you know, back in the Latin. Priori means one. And his point is that when someone says like, oh, I've got 14 big priorities this week, well, you're, you're butchering the definition. You can't have 14 priorities. You have one. The other 13 aren't priorities. And when it comes to financial goals, I see that a lot of people saying, we've got all these different financial goals, as you should, as do I. But at least in my mind's eye and kind of the financial plan that I've cobbled together, I do have them ranked. One of them right now is my priority. And then once I check that one off, the next one will be a priority. And then the next one, then the next one, the next one. Anyway. It's just very interesting stuff. So I like that. Stacked, priorities, funny, cage matches. Good summary right there. <laughs> That's it. That's it. We should have had you do the promo for the book, man. Oh, man. I, it's Let me know. Let me know what I can do. It would probably be one of my top five experiences of my life, I think, Joe. Joe, thanks so much for coming on the Best Interest Podcast. How can people find Stacking Benjamins? Assume they've been living in a cave for maybe a decade or so. How can they find you? Yes. Stacky Benjamins is a podcast. It's every Monday, Wednesday, Friday. We try to make sure that if Monday we went left, Wednesday we go right. And then Thursday we find some, Friday we find some other direction. We call it the greatest money show on earth. It's probably second greatest behind the best interest podcast. Duh. 
but we don't call it that because we're cocky. We call it that because it's a circus and we want it to be a circus. We want it to surprise and delight you. So we'll talk everything from goal setting to uh, resilience to just the basics of budgeting. And we hope to, you know, talk about a lot of stuff that will make your life better without yelling at you, which is what I like about the best interest podcast too. I just don't want to yell at people about their money. Joe Saul, see hi. Thank you for coming on the best interest podcast. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the best interest podcast. If you have a question for Jesse to answer on a future episode, send him an email at jesse at bestinterest.blog. Again, that's jesse at bestinterest.blog. Did you enjoy the show? Subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever you listen. This helps others find the show and invest in knowledge themselves, and we really appreciate it. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Best Interest Podcast. The Best Interest Podcast is a personal podcast meant for education and entertainment. It should not be taken as financial advice and is not prescriptive of your financial situation.